0: The following message is brought to you by New Song Church and Pastor Joshua Blunt in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information on New Song, visit us online at newsongpeople.com. Well, I knew that uh, as soon as I heard we were doing a red letter series that I wanted to preach on the red letters from the Sermon on the Mount. This is the best sermon that anyone has ever preached in the history of sermons ever. What Jesus preached at the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, I was as I was reading about the sermon this week, I read this and I totally agree with it. It says, "It has been said that if you took all the good advice for how to live ever uttered by any philosopher or psychiatrist or counselor, took out the foolishness and boiled it all down to the real essentials, you would be left with a poor imitation of this great message by Jesus. This is the Sermon on the Mount. So when's the last time you read the Sermon on the Mount? It's Matthew chapter five, chapter six, and chapter seven. And I want you to take time to read it this week. Uh, If you have the Dwell app, you can listen to the Sermon on the Mount in 17 minutes. Greatest sermon ever, 17 minutes long. How am I preaching on it for 45 minutes a day? I don't know. But uh, I I I want you to take time this week to set aside time and say, I'm going to read the entire Sermon on the Mount. Who's going to do it? Who's got 17 minutes? They can listen or read the sermon with me this week. Okay, good. Now, the reason I'm so passionate about the Sermon on the Mount is because this is the declaration of the kingdom of God. I've talked about this before at New Song. We have the Declaration of Independence in America. This is the declaration of the kingdom. This is where Jesus lays out what the kingdom of God is all about, the kind of kingdom that he's looking to build in our lives. So don't you think we should pay attention to it? Amen? Sadly, I think that there are more Americans who can quote from the Declaration of Independence than they can from the Sermon on the Mount. And the reason that is, is because we identify more as American citizens than we do as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And hear me, I love this country, I do. I wouldn't. There's nowhere else I'd rather live. I can't stand the scene right now, but I love this country. But I love God's perfect kingdom more. And I identify more as a daughter of God and a, a citizen of the kingdom of God than I do as a citizen of America. So I love this sermon. And uh, obviously, we can't get through Matthew 5, 6, and 7 today. We're only going to cover seven verses. Actually, we're only going to cover four verses. And then next week, I'm going to be back, and we're going to cover the next four verses. Is that okay with you guys? All right, Matthew 5, verses 3 through 10. We're going to start at the very beginning, because it's a very good place to start, right? Sound of Music fans, anywhere, anywhere? Uh, Matthew 5, 3 through 10. We're going to be talking about the Beatitudes today. What is a Beatitude, you may be asking? Well, this is kind of a, an easy way to remember what this is all about. The Beatitudes are attitudes that should be in your life. We're going to say that a lot today. So I want you to turn to your neighbor and say, These attitudes yes. should, be should be in my life. In my life, these are attitudes that, as citizens of the kingdom of God, should define your character. They should define your nature. Yeah. They should be what you are aspiring uh, to, towards in your life. These are attitudes that you should be modeling towards your children or for your children, because as you'll see as we go through this, these attitudes are exactly the opposite of what they're seeing modeled in the world around them. And a, a little disclaimer here, these attitudes won't be in your life without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. You're going to have to ho- have the Holy Spirit as an active part of your life. You're going to have to be daily filled with the Spirit if you want to see these attitudes in your life daily, okay? So that's just my little disclaimer. You can't do this on your own. Okay, I'm going to read you the Beatitudes this morning. Matthew 5, 3 through 10. Follow along with me. Don't check out. Like, really read what words stick out to you as you read. I've kind of made it easy. I think when they show up, the words I want to stick out to you are going to be bold. Okay, so pay attention to those bold words. Here we go. Matthew 5, 3 through 10. Blessed Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, when you first read this, you're probably thinking, oh, I get it. Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount on opposite day, because words like blessed don't really go with words like poor. Words like blessed don't really go with the words persecuted, or hungry, or thirsty, or Or mourning right they don't really go together this is a passage of scripture that we tend to kind of skim over because these aren't uh, words that really get our flesh excited (laughs) we're not excited about being persecuted or mourning or being meek Right? We want to get to the scriptures that talk about being victorious and and our authority in Christ. We want to get to the scriptures that talk about how we're blessed coming in and we're blessed going out and everything we set our hands to prospers. That's exciting, right? But let me just tell you that you will not be blessed coming in or going out or going anywhere if you don't have these attitudes in your life. It starts here. That's why Jesus started the declaration of the kingdom here with these Words. Okay, so we see the word blessed here though. That's that's exciting. That's a good sign. It's not all just poor and and, and, and persecuted. The word blessed is here eight times. Blessed blessed, 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 blessed. It's there so much and we see that word so much in the church world that it's like when you say your name over and over and over again and then it doesn't sound like a word at all. It's kind of what I think Christians uh, do when we see the word blessed. We see it so much that it's kind of like, what does that even mean? Well, here it means happy, but not happy like you and I know happy. This is a supernatural happy. This is a supernatural joy. Look at this definition. Blessed is a joy which has its secret within itself. It's a joy which is serene and untouchable. Somebody say, untouchable joy. It's self contained, the joy which is completely independent of all the chances and changes. Of life. Come on, somebody. This is what we need in our life untouchable joy. In fact, if you're taking notes this morning, that's what I call this message, untouchable part one. We're gonna talk about untouchable part two next week. This is untouchable part one. Beatitude believers are untouchable, their joy is untouchable. You lose your job, your joy is untouched. Your kids start school and then three weeks later they switch back to distance learning. Your joy is untouched. (laughs) If I'm prophesying right now, I'm going to need somebody to text message me and let me know. Remember that my joy can be untouched. You don't want to wear a mask. Now you have to wear a mask at Walmart. Your joy is untouched. A candidate that is not from your political party wins the election in November. Your joy does not have to be touched. You have a miscarriage or deliver a baby stillborn. Your joy does not have to be touched. Of course, you're gonna mourn. Of course, you're gonna have emotion. Of course, you're gonna have grief. But that underlying joy is there, untouched. If you are a beatitude believer, you get a bad report from the doctor or a positive COVID-19 test, your joy is untouched. Touched. You hear someone's been talking about you behind your back. You fail your history exam. You don't get into the college that you wanted to get into. Your joy can be untouched. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for my righteousness. He's saying, uh, untouchable are those who are poor in spirit. The blessed life is not about money, or cars, or status, or influence, or power. The blessed life is about untouchable joy. Now, some of you guys are not experiencing this kind of joy. You're... you're um, You're not living this blessed life that Jesus talked about here in the red letters. In fact, with all these changes that have been coming our way on the daily, on the minute, every change, every mandate, every news article you read, it is poking at your joy and messing with your happiness. Your joy is not independent. Your joy is very dependent upon what's going on around you. And because of that, you are mad, you are stressed, you are angry, you are bitter, you are complaining all the time. If you're not feeling very blessed and you're not feeling like your joy is very untouchable, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to stop blaming the devil. I want you to stop blaming the government and I want you to look inward and maybe, maybe the reason that your joy is untouched is because these attitudes that should be in your life are not. Could that be, could that be the case? Can we stop blaming everybody else? And could we look inward? Should these attitudes that should be in your life, are they not? Beatitude believers are untouchable and that's what I want for you. That's what we want for you, church. We want you to live there. We want you to live this kingdom-blessed life that's available to you as citizens of heaven. Okay, so let's get into these attitudes. The first one is untouchable or blessed. Untouchable are the poor in spirit. I love that word are, and it's gonna be in every single beatitude that we talk about. I love it because it's present-tensed. It's so... Uh, Hope filled. It doesn't say blessed will be the poor in spirit, but blessed are right now. All of these are right now blessings if we will choose to have these attitudes in our life. Okay. Blessed are the poor in spirit, untouchable. So, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, first, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you have no self esteem or low self esteem. It doesn't mean that you Think of yourself as no good idiot loser you're not like forky from toy story 4 trash and then looking to throw yourself away the first chance that you get you know when i was writing this i had like a score spotify playlist going on and as i as i uh was writing this point that song by randy newman from toy story 4 came on i can't let you i can't let you throw yourself away listen i'm not gonna let you throw yourself away because god did not die on the cross for trash you are not trash okay that's not what being poor in spirit looks like here's what it looks like to be poor in spirit it means admitting spiritual bankruptcy and having a humble and honest or humble and honest attitude toward self now thankfully the only time i've ever had to file bankruptcy was in the game of Monopoly. And that's only been a handful of times because I'm really good at Monopoly, guys. Like if I if there was like a pro Monopoly, I could go pro in Monopoly. I'm just saying. But I have had to file bankruptcy in Monopoly. And I know that the idea is you have when you file bankruptcy, you're admitting I do not have enough to pay my outstanding debts. Here are the the houses, here are all the hotels, take all the money, all my assets. I'm never gonna be able to get myself out of this debt. I need a fresh start, I have to start over. And that's a lot what, uh, a lot like what spiritual bankruptcy looks like. It's saying to God, I realize that there is no way that I could ever pay on my own the outstanding debt, the wages that were owed for my sin. I could never do it on my own. I could go to church every week. I could spend my weekends and weeknights feeding the poor and, and helping the sick, but it wouldn't even make a dent in the wages that are owed for my sin. So I say to you, God, I am not enough. I admit spiritual bankruptcy. I need you. I give you all of me. Take all of me. Here it is. I need a fresh start. That's where we all start, right? Our walk with God. We all start poor in spirit. But what happens, I think, is that as we begin to walk with God, and as we begin to get a little bit better and more comfortable and uh, as a Christian and we start to to do the external things that we should be doing like going to church like Paying our tithes like serving in the parking lot even on rainy days like uh, raising our hands in worship you can even pray in tongues and you get really good at the external Christian behaviors and what happens is based on that external behavior you think that you've got this life this Christ life in Christ thing all figured out and you be, you start to get a little credit built up in your spirit and you're not poor in spirit anymore The Pharisees showed us what the opposite of being poor in spirit looks like. They were under this illusion that in their own power and in their own ability, that they could be holy enough. They didn't see their need for a savior. They weren't poor in spirit. They were rich in spirit. I've been there before. I wouldn't say that I was rich in spirit, but I definitely wasn't poor in spirit. I would say I was upper middle class in spirit. And I knew I needed God for some things, so I'd go to him for help with some things. But for the most part, I felt like I had it all figured out. Every once in a while, I would rub the lamp and hope that God, the genie, would come out and answer my prayers. But for the most part, I wasn't poor in spirit. So what changed? I I felt like my marriage was beginning to slip through my fingers. You've heard our story. Two years into my marriage, 20 years old, I thought I had it all figured out. My joy was based uh, on, on all the wrong things. It was not untouchable. My joy was not untouchable. And because of that, I was trying to fulfill it in different ways. And I was just selfish. I was not ruling and reigning. God's kingdom come. God's will be done was not happening in my life. My flesh was leading me around. I was subject to my flesh. So what changed? I had that moment where I came to my senses like the prodigal son. And I realized that I was upper middle class in spirit and I needed to empty myself real quick and say the debt that I owe I can't do without you this life this Christian life I can't do without you yes I needed you to save me but I need you daily yeah. this spiritual bankrupt this poor and spirit is a daily thing it's a decision every day to say the debt I owe this life that you have called me to live I can't do it without you spiritually bankrupt And then we have to have that humble and honest attitude toward ourselves romans 12 3 says do not think of yourself more highly than you ought but rather think of yourself with sober judgment somebody say sober 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 judgment and according with the measure of faith god has given you so what this is saying it's not that we're not to think of ourselves because God thinks of us, and he thinks highly of us. He loves us, we're his children, but we're not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. What this is basically saying is take the beer goggles off. Uh, Look at yourself with sober judgment. Instead of looking at what the world is feeding you all the time, you're enough. You're brave enough. You're a mom enough. You're spiritual enough. You're holy enough. You're Christian enough. Instead of looking at your life through the eyes of what the world is telling you, look at yourself through the eyes of scripture. I'm enough, but it's not because of anything I've done. I'm enough because the greater one lives in me. Look at your gifts. Look at your talents. Look at every good and perfect thing in your life and look at it with sober judgment. All of these things come from God, my Father. Even the faith that I had to put my trust in Him was a gift from Him. Every single thing we have is a gift from Him. So we've got to look at ourselves with a humble and honest um, approach. Okay, that's what it looks like to be poor in spirit. And when we do that, the kingdom belongs to us. Listen, if you're self-satisfied and self-sufficient, you're not poor in spirit. Therefore, you're not untouchable and the kingdom doesn't belong to you. Jesus's words, not mine. Okay. (laughs) Untouchable are those who mourn. Somebody say these attitudes attitudes should be in my life. life. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. I've always thought that this verse was talking about when you're at a funeral you know, and you've lost somebody and you're sad and you're grieving that Jesus is gonna be there to comfort you, which he will, that, that applies. I mean, he comforts us when we're hurting, but it's not talking about the death of a loved one in a funeral. I mean, somebody did die and we should be mourning, but there's more to meet than meets the eye here. It, it, the somebody that died is innocent Jesus. And the something that killed him was the multitude of my sins. And the mourning that happens, it's over the sins that put him on the cross. And the comfort that it's administered, it's from Jesus. So what it's talking about, when we're mourning here, it's we're mourning over our sins. And rarely, if ever, in our upside down world do we truly mourn over our sin. 2 Corinthians 7.10 talks about this. It says, for the kind of sorrow or mourning God wants us to experience. Some of you right now, that's rocking your world because wait, Jesus doesn't want me to be sad. He came to wipe away every tear and to put together my broken heart. He does want you to experience sorrow. But what does he want you to experience sorrow over? The kind of sorrow God wants us to experience. It leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. So what we have here is a dichotomy of godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, and a lot of believers, they never understand the difference between these two types of sorrow. Judas showed us worldly sorrow. He recognized he was a sinner and he was sorry about that. And then what did he do? He committed suicide. That's worldly sorrow. Listen, worldly sorrow, write this down. It's focused on all the wrong things. It's focused on what you lost because of your sin. It's focused on your reputation. It's focused on your job, your marriage, the spouse's trust that you lost. It's focused on your dignity. It's all very selfish, worldly sorrow. It's sorrow over the consequence of sin, not the actual sin. Okay, Peter showed us godly sorrow. He was a sinner and he wept bitterly. He experienced true sorrow. He was sorry over how he sinned against God, and that's what godly sorrow looks like. It's not all about, I'm sorry, I sinned, and now my life is a mess. It's, I'm sorry, I sinned against you, God, and my sin put you on the cross. I sinned against you. Make my heart break for how uh, your heart breaks. That's what godly sorrow looks like. And as a pastor, I've talked with people who have messed up and their sin has been exposed, and you get that panic phone call, Oh my gosh this just happened and they're crying and they're sobbing and they're so afraid of what they might lose and i let them cry and i let them talk and i let them be angry at themselves for getting themselves into the situation i let them go through that i let them feel and then i say okay they say what's next what do i do now well, before you start trying to piece everything together, you need to let yourself be broken before God. You need to experience godly sorrow. And most of the time they'll say, what do you mean? What, what is godly sorrow? Like everything you've been crying and blubbering about, that's worldly sorrow. You need to go get on your face before God and repent and let your heart break. And then here's what happens when we do that. 2 Corinthians 7:11 This is such a great a great scripture that shows us the fruit that we can expect when we experience godly sorrow and repent. You're more alive. You're more concerned. You're more sensitive toward sin, toward the things of God. You're more reverent. You're more human. You're more passionate, more responsible, looked at from any angle, you've come out of this with purity of heart but worldly sorrow results in death. So you can have all these things in 2 Corinthians seven eleven. If you'll experience that moment of being uncomfortable, if you'll experience that moment of being in mourning, God will put you in touch with his eternal comfort. He blesses those who mourn for they will be comforted. He doesn't want you to stay there downcast and mourning. He wants to pick you up, lift up your head, dry your tears and say, you sinned, you messed up, but you've repented. This doesn't define you. This is not who you are. So keep moving forward. Don't look back. Keep your hand to the plow. I have great things for you to accomplish. I'm not finished with you yet. When we mourn, he comforts us. But beatitude believers are untouchable. Number three, untouchable are the meek. The meek. Somebody say, these attitudes, these attitudes should, be should be in my life. I'm sure uh, if you're in the online dating world, <laughs> you probably haven't come across many profiles where people are describing themselves as poor <laughs> and mourning, love long walks on the beach in mourning, and mourning. Um, And I'm really meek and lowly hearted. Like that's not a word our flesh finds attractive, right? Meek. A lot of times we think meek means weak, but it does not. Jesus said he was meek and lowly hearted, and yet we know that he was one of the most courageous, the most courageous man to ever walk among humankind. And he said, I'm meek and lowly hearted. So what does meek look like? Well, it's not weakness. It doesn't mean somebody who's spineless and can't get angry or is unwilling to get angry. We know that Jesus flipped over some tables and he got mad, he got angry, but he sinned not. Meekness is, write this down, power under control. It's power under control. A meek person can be angry, but restrain their anger and obedience to the will of God. A meek person will not be easily provoked by others. A meek person will not be easily provoked by others. A meek person will not be easily provoked by others. I'm going to say it one more time for those in the back. A meek person will not be easily provoked by others. A picture of this is a strong stallion who was trained to do the job instead of running wild. Like the strength is still there, but the strength has been brought under control and harnessed to get a job done. We got a job to do in this world, amen? Amen. So we've gotta learn how to harness the power that we have. So hopefully you're asking yourself right now, am I meek? Am I meek? And here's how you know. Are you able to keep all the power that you've been given? Physical power, mental power, spiritual power, emotional power, are you able to keep that under control? We see this displayed in the life of Joseph. Joseph's brothers done did him dirty, right? They did him dirty. And uh, they, they, they were gonna kill him, sold him into slavery, and through a turn of events, he became the second most powerful man in Egypt. His brothers did not know that. His dad thought he was dead. His brothers come. Joseph is in this position of power. He has so much power. He recognizes his brothers. They don't recognize him. He has in that moment the power to throw them in jail, to probably kill them and get away with it. He has the power to right a wrong. Meekness is not about, we don't see it displayed in our lives when we're wrong. We see meekness displayed in our lives when we're right. And we we could do something about it, but we choose not to. How did he have the power to do this? How how could Joseph do this? Like, I don't, I mean, if it was me and it was my brothers and sisters, I'd be like, y'all are going to jail at least for six months or something. (laughs) Like, I would make them pay. Uh, But he was able to control his desire for wrongs to be made right. Here's the bottom line. He was confident in God. He, was, he had seen God move in his life over and over and over again. He was so confident that he'd see him do it again, that he didn't have to open his mouth, that he didn't have to defend himself, that he didn't have to right the wrongs done to him, that God would take care of him. Yeah. We see this in the life of Jesus. It says in scripture, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent. He did not open his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he stayed quiet, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. He wasn't like, just wait till my dad finds out about this. He made no threats. Instead, this is beautiful, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Can you entrust yourself to him who judges justly? Now, hear me. I'm not talking about staying silent about injustice. Proverbs 31, eight through nine says, speak up for those who can't speak up for themselves. For the rights of all who are destitute, we've got to speak out against things like racial injustice, against people wanting to make pedophilia a sexual orientation. We will speak up, we will speak out, we will stand against sin that is wrong in our country, in our nation, in this world. We will speak up for those who can't speak for themselves. This is talking more about personal offense. I want you to think about Jesus' actions versus Peter's actions. Peter, when they started talking about Jesus, trying to take Jesus, he got his sword and he cut that guard's ear off, right? Jesus stayed silent. Peter's action was natural, but Jesus, his action was supernatural. He was able to keep that power he had under control. Listen, I've seen some of you on Facebook. I'm not on Facebook anymore, by the way. If you're like, why is not Pastor Sarah like on my posts anymore? Because I can't do Facebook anymore. I stopped scrolling. Um... But when I was on Facebook, I would see good, godly Christian people, new song people. Finding ways to string together words to pull out their sword and respond in very natural ways. To defend their opinion to make themselves uh, seem right to 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 defend their belief to defend th- their political party whatever it was you you'd pull out your sword string together words in a way give your opinion when the person was not asking for it that's not a meek person that's natural not supernatural you have the power uh, you, you have the power to unfriend those who disagree with you. You have the power to make somebody look like an idiot. You have the power to throw your ex or your boss under the bus. That's not rare, right? You have the power. What's rare is somebody who has that power but knows how to keep it under control. We are not striving for the natural but the supernatural. 2 Timothy two twenty seven, The Lord's servant must not quarrel but be gentle to all, good at teaching, slow to take offense, one who can reduce his opponents by the sharpness of his words, one who can reduce his opponents by a really ugly meme. No, one who can reduce his opponents by the mildness of his manners. Stop quarreling, please as one of your pastors. Stop quarreling, please. If you need to talk to somebody, invite them to dinner and use your manners. And if you don't have a relationship where you could feel comfortable inviting them to dinner, then just keep scrolling. Just shut up, okay? All right. And what happens, what happens when we do this? The Lord says, Jesus says, we inherit the earth. Think about the word inherit. We inherit things when somebody dies. Who dies here? It's us. We die to self. We die to the right and the need to be heard, to be vindicated. And when we do, we inherit the riches that we have in Christ. Okay, lastly, number four. Untouchable are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Somebody say, these attitudes. Should. Should Good. Do that again. These attitudes should. There we go. Okay, we can agree, right? That food and water are necessities, not luxuries. This was especially true when Jesus was teaching this Sermon on the Mount. Food and water was always used carefully and never wasted. I know it's kind of hard for us to wrap our mind around. Like, I waste food on the regular. I know that's not good, but we 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 have food left over. I put it in a Tupperware because like there's something morally in me that feels like it's wrong to throw it away. So I put it in the Tupperware. I put it in the fridge and then two weeks later when my fridge is full I get it out it's fuzzy I throw it away as I'm gagging and then I do it all over again why do I keep saving the food or like I'll meal plan but not meal plan correctly and I'll buy ingredients to make tacos for Thursday night and then we end up having a softball game and we eat out that night and then all the taco ingredients go bad and I throw it all away like I know it's bad, but that's what we do. We don't understand this like we should. Food for us kind of is a luxury when we can just throw out two pounds of ground beef. Like that's, that's where we're at in America. But for these, this group of people, it was a necessity. And Jesus was saying uh, righteousness is not a luxury. Righteousness is a necessity. Just like our physical bodies depend on food and water, our spiritual life depends on righteousness. What does that mean, righteousness? It means to be right with God, to be right with others, and to be right with self. It means holiness. Or another word from the same family, wholeness. Don't you love that word, wholeness? We should hunger and thirst to be right with God. We should be thirsty to be right with others. We should be hungry for holiness and thirsty for wholeness because our hunger is what drives us. So what's driving you? Heart check moment. Are you driven by influence, power, comfort? I just want to be comfortable. I just want to retire and and, and be comfortable. Are you driven by popularity or status? Or are you driven by the desire to be whole and holiness and right with God? Listen, if if you hunger, for things outside the will of God. And then you seek to satisfy that hunger, two things are going to be happen. One, you're going to end up being really disappointed. And maybe you're thinking I I could handle disappointment. I've been disappointed all my life. But the second thing that you're headed toward is judgment. Judgment. That's what happens when we seek to satisfy God's will or when we seek to satisfy hungers outside of God's will. Now, if we hunger for things inside the will of God, here's what happens. Jesus says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. We are satisfied when we hunger and thirst for holiness. And here's what happens. When our inner person is satisfied with holiness, it becomes increasingly dissatisfied with sin and that's a good place to be what happens is when we hunger and thirst for righteousness our heart and our our mind and our will they all begin to to line up and work together our mind begins to see and recognize sin for what it is like the closer we get to holiness the greater the light is and we can see the defilement of sin our heart begins to repulse sin like a dog returning to its vomit no more we are repulsed by that and the then our will begins to refuse sin. That's what happens when we start to get filled, when we start to hunger and thirst for holiness. Our mind, our heart, and our will work together to stand against sin. My son, Gus, is 12. He's heading into the fifth grade. No, the sixth grade, oh my gosh. He's heading into the sixth grade, and um, I remember there was a time when he used to love school cafeteria lunches, uh, he would get so excited. Usually, he's a sack lunch. He buy. He, I would pack him a lunch, but every once in a while, I would let him do a hot lunch, and he would get so excited about it. Like he loved the powdered mashed potatoes and the gravy and whatever it is, the greasy pizza. He would come home and he would tell me how good uh, his hot lunch was. That lasted until fourth grade. Once he started fourth grade, his his palate had been officially refined. Okay. And I can kind of trace this back to when he stopped eating off the kids menu. Okay. I don't know about you, but I remember this moment as a kid when I stopped eating off the kids menu and it's this like, it's a, it's kind of this conflict because here I was probably 10, 11, and I still liked the kids menu. I liked getting a color sheet and I liked those little generic crayons and I was at El Chico and El Chico used to have the red jello it was like super watery jello I liked that red jello I, I, I wasn't sure if I was ready to give up the coloring page and the jello or the cheap thrill of the McDonald's Happy Meal so I wasn't sure if I was ready to give that up but I remember making that decision and being like okay I'm ordering off the adult menu at El Chico for the first time in my life. And something changed. When I did that, I started to realize, like, okay, yeah, I needed more food than chicken nuggets, grilled cheese, and soggy french fries and jello. There's more out there. Look at this menu. There's so much more. I had to leave that behind. And I, I think that when Gus started eating off, the adult menu instead of the kids menu that's when he realized there's more to life than grilled cheese and pizza and powdered mashed potatoes and what he once was excited about the hot lunch at school now he is repulsed by the, the, he, his, his palate had been refined listen God wants to refine your palate as you hunger and thirst for righteousness. He wants to show you that that this this thing that you're kind of holding on to These cheap thrills of looking at pornography or gossiping or cheating or lying, these cheap thrills, whatever it is, this thing that you're watching that you know, this cheap thrill, you you kind of have this conflict. I don't want to let this go. I don't want to get rid of the soggy red jello. But when you begin to see God and see his holiness, see his righteousness, when you begin to hunger and thirst for those things, it's so easy to leave that stuff in the dust. It's so easy to start eating the good meals, That Jesus has prepared for you. Listen, you're not you're not gonna miss out on anything. Psalm eighty-four, eleven says, No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. When you preach or when you seek hunger and thirst after righteousness, he does not withhold good things from you. Listen, wherever you're at today, I believe he wants to refine your palate. He wants to satisfy you in a greater way. It's the appreciation of the excellent that motivates the believer to refuse the cheap and defiled. He wants to create in you a new appreciation for his holiness, for his excellence today. If you would, bow your head and close your eyes. What's the Holy Spirit saying to you today? Maybe you're at a place where you're feeling spiritually middle class, upper middle class. Do you need to empty yourself and admit that you are not enough? Admit that you came here today with nothing except all that he has given to you. Maybe you've been easily offendable. He wants to just gently speak to your heart today and just show you hey, there's better. Yeah. We can do this better. Yeah. Listen for that comforting voice. Maybe you're realizing that you've, you've kind of brushed off some sin. Maybe it's even something in your past that you realize you, you didn't experience godly sorrow over. And he's saying, it's not too late. You can go home today and experience that godly sorrow and get free and truly repent what's the holy spirit saying to you if you're here today and you have never made jesus the lord of your life if you're here today and for the first time you're ready to admit spiritual bankruptcy like god i could never pay this debt I need you. I need a savior. We're going to say a prayer together here in a moment. And I want you to know that as you say this prayer, that something supernatural happens. That when you confess with your mouth mouth, and you believe in your heart that you are spiritually bankrupt and that Jesus is the only one who can save you and you declare that he's going to be your Lord and Savior and you're going to walk with him you ask him to forgive you, you become brand new. He gives you a brand new spirit, and you begin to walk with him. You're born again. It'd be your spiritual birthday today. So if that's you, we're all going to say this prayer here in a moment. I want you to say it with us. Take stock of the words that you're saying, and then we'll have instructions for you after the service. Church, would you say this with me? God, I say with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Savior. I believe Jesus died died. and that you raised him from the dead. dead. His blood washed away my sin sin. past, present, and future. future. I'm sorry for my sins sins. But but now sin no longer separates me from you. Thank you for forgiving me. I give you my life. life. Thank you for giving me a brand new perfect spirit. And welcoming me into the family of God. God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message from New Song Church. If you have a prayer need or would like more information about New Song, you can email info at newsongpeople.com. If you would like to partner with New Song through giving, go to www.newsongpeople.com forward slash give. And if you want to stay connected to New Song, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for New Song People.